Welcome back to Inside the Labyrinth Podcast. This podcast is powered by Rough for Responders. This episode is sponsored by Fowler Supplements and No Matter What Apparel. Visit www.valorsupplements.net and use the code RFR10 in all caps for 10% off your total purchase. Visit www.nomatterwhatapparel.com and use the code inside the lab in all caps for 10% off your total purchase. In this episode, myself and Jay had the opportunity to speak with James R. Fitzgerald, retired FBI supervisory special agent, criminal profiler, forensic linguist, and member of the behavioral analyst unit. This episode was something that myself and Jay are really speechless over. Mr. Fitzgerald speaks about his journey on becoming a police officer and how he transitioned to the FBI and life after. Mr. Fitzgerald also gave us some advice of what he would say to police officers joining the academy now and really what to focus on in your career. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. To learn more about Mr. Fitzgerald, you can visit his website at www.jamesrfitzgerald.com. He wrote three books, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, book one, two, and three. You can check that out on his website. And also the Netflix show Manhunt Unabomb is based on real-life FBI agent James R. Fitzgerald. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It's one that I will take on with me for the rest of my career and life after. Have a great day, everybody. And always be safe. And we're live. Welcome back to Inside the Labyrinth Podcast, Season 5, Episode 3. Last episode, we had Heath Evans, retired fullback from the Saints, also a Super Bowl winner. Great episode. Please check that check that out. And before we introduce our guest, going to kick it over to the one and only Jumpman Jay. Hey, how's it going, guys? Uh, welcome back to this week's episode. I am extremely excited for this one. Uh, this should be a fan favorite. You know, Frankie's always pulling out the stops by getting these great guests. So I'll let you take it from there, Frankie. Thank you, Jay. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited for today. Um, had a great conversation with this man yesterday. So let's get down into business. Um, introduce Season 5, Episode 3, James R. Fitzgerald, American criminal profiler, forensics uh, linguist, and he's also the author of three books, Center to, uh, I'm sorry, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, book one, two, and three. And he's best known for the role in the Unibom, uh, Unibom investigation. So James, how you doing? How you doing right now where your feet are? I am doing great, all things considered. Uh, Frank and Jason, thanks for this invite. I'm always, uh, always like talking to younger members of the uh, uh, of uh, our forces in blue, our first responders, military, of course. So uh, it's great to be on this program. Thanks for the invite again. It's a pleasure to have mm-hmm. you. No, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Um, so we don't want to waste any time. We want to go to a Young Fitz Police Academy. I think you were 23 years old. How was policing for you? How was your mindset then? Yeah, this is uh, going back. Uh, I was married in May of 76. And by uh, August of 76, I was away at the Pennsylvania State Police Academy for their um, and staying there overnight for their municipal police training. So I wasn't a state trooper or a 
fledgling state trooper, but that's where back then um, uh, officers for my PD, Ben Salem Police Department, uh, suburban Philly, northern suburbs of Philly, about 100 sworn, was then, is now. So relatively smaller department, but very busy with, uh, with uh, Route 1 going through it, I-95, the PA Turnpike, a racetrack. We had our share of stuff. But back to the academy, it was a great experience. I actually went through it with a guy I knew from uh, grade school, high school, and college, and uh, both from the same Omni neighborhood of Philadelphia. And here we are, uh, classmates in this uh, academy class, both of us going to the Ben Salem PD. So yeah, it was interesting 12 weeks and um, learned a lot, of course. First time I ever fired a gun. I didn't grow up hunting or anything like that. No one in my family had weapons. Uh, so a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of a learning curve for me. Um, uh, but I was in good shape and could handle myself. So the, the physical training part was fine. And, you know, memorizing the vehicle code was a little tricky at, at times. But, you know, speed limits and what different uh, signs mean you know, beyond what the average licensed driver needs. And then, um, yeah, I graduate. My parents were there. Uh, my, my, my then uh, very young wife in our young marriage and uh, in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And um, five nights later, uh, my first tour of duty, it's a midnight shift, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And I make a felony arrest that night, which um, is above the fold headlines in the newspaper the next day. And for you guys and even other younger listeners, above the fold means it was like the bigger story because the mm -hmm. paper would be folded in half when you deliver it. A lot of people don't read newspapers anymore. I get it. But that was a big story. And the, and the headline was rookie has busy first night. And we caught three burglars breaking into a, a department store in our uh, in our town and uh, two adults, one juvenile. And again, for some reason, some desk sergeant thought it was an interesting story with the local you know, journalists who call it every morning. That was actually an afternoon paper then. And uh, and uh, that was the story. So I come into work the next night. So my second shift on, and I have guys pissed off at me. Hey, who do you think you are, rookie? I'm sorry, what? I wasn't even living in Benstown, Bucks County back then. I was still mm -hmm. living in Philly and driving to my PD. I had to eventually move in within six months. There was a residency requirement. I said, what are you talking about? And these guys walk up to me, I've been on here six years and I've never been in the newspaper. You're one night. Who do you know? I said, what are you talking about? I don't know anybody. Uh, and, and finally someone walks in with the newspaper. I said, you gotta be kidding me. This is not that big of a deal. We three mopes, you know, broke into this uh, department store. We got them. And uh, so ever since then, after my first night, I think some guys resented me that I got these uh, headlines uh, again on my first night. Um, but, you know, I eventually got over that part and I, I blended into the, uh, to the whole uh, scenario and the environment of law enforcement, which was different. And, um, you know, as a young guy, 23, you're not too far out of college and, you know, maybe some underage drinking, you know, before then. And now all of a sudden you're getting calls to arrest kids that were underage drinking. And you say, oh, all right, are they really causing a problem? Is there any issue here? Are they driving? You know, blah, blah. And, um, and go from there. So, I, and I always say, I felt I was really well prepared and well trained to handle felony car stops, went over and over and over that at the police academy, uh, you know, barricaded people. I mean, of course, every situation is different. But as mm -hmm. I always say, my biggest learning um, uh, impediment, if you will, or, 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 or adaption, 
impediment was to domestic disturbances. And as we all know in the police force, that's many of the calls that officers get. And of course, that's when the husband calls on the wife, the wife calls on the husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, baby mama, dad, or whatever the deal, deal is, they get called to the house. And here I am 23 years of age, and Jason and Frank, I'm sure you've been there. And all of a sudden, there's these 40-year-old people, which back then were old people to me. And, uh, you know, and they're yelling and screaming, she has a black eye, and, you know, he has a cut mark on his arm. And, you know, I'm 23, and supposed to settle these guys' life problems for the last, you know, two decades. And of course, you know, if you can arrest someone, you do. If you can separate them and get them to go, one of them goes somewhere else for the night, make sure the kids are safe if they're involved. So if there's any, the biggest transition I had, I didn't grow up in a family like that. Fortunately for me, and not everyone can claim that I know, but there was no alcoholism, no no abuse or, uh, or, or, or violence of any sort. I'm not saying things were always perfect, but just nothing like I would see when I became a, uh, a, a rookie patrol officer. So yeah, kind of summing up uh, my first, you know, few weeks on the job, um, that was kind of the totality of it. A lot of learning, uh, a, a lot of, uh, you know, information overload, but you know what? I got through it. And um, for the next 11 years in various ranks within that police department, um, on the whole, I did pretty well. Awesome. Jay, I think, now, Jay, Jay, you were 23 when you got on too, right? Yeah, it's 22, turning 23. Um, it's interesting. When you became a cop, was it like in your mind that you wanted to be this like top cop? Because um, I know most young guys that get on a job, it's like either there's two types. There's guys that just want to do the bare minimum. And then there's the guys that they want to be quote unquote legendary. Was that something that was in your mind when uh, when you graduated? Yeah, and that's a good question, Jason. And um, I think a lot of us, enter law enforcement for different reasons. Um, I had no law enforcement role models, so to speak, in my life. Um, uh, as I got a little bit older, I had friends whose brothers were on the Philly PD and we'd meet them after like their three to 11 shift to be like, you know, 11, 30, 12, they'd be home. And they'd be just tell some really fun stories from earlier, you know, that shift or the shift before whatever. And I said, man, this is kind of cool. So I was already in college at Penn State I didn't really know what I wanted to be. And uh, I always enjoyed criminal justice and, and reading of true crime. As I wrote in my book, and I've given a few talks over the years, uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, a lot of people don't even know about this anymore. Before my time, 1930s, but you know, the famed aviator had his son kidnapped from their home in New Jersey. And that mm. case, my parents always talked about that case because they were alive back then. And that just fascinated me. And the first grown-up book I ever read was called Kidnap, and it's about that case. And I, ever since then, I was just uh, 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 enthralled with, 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 with police work and true crime. And um, so, yeah, all of a sudden now I'm on the PD, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting different kinds of officers. You know, I remember one, uh, you know, my second or third night on the force, some older veteran comes up to me and says, uh, I think he did. He wasn't still mad at me over the newspaper article, but he said, uh, he said, hey, kid, 12 weeks at the academy, right? And I said, uh, uh, yeah. He said, all right, forget everything you learned there. This is the real world. Oh, geez. Uh, okay. Now, of course, I didn't take him literally on that, but there is a difference to what you learn in the classroom and what you apply on the streets. But, you know, uh, I wrote um, my second book. I'm going to hold up a copy of it here. 
Uh, it's a thick one. I always tell officers you can use it for bicep exercises um, uh, in the patrol car when you're in Perfect. the middle of the night when things are slow. But um, um, there's a lot in there, and that's all my. I, I broke I broke my three books down into different parts of my life. And the, the middle book so far, uh, the second book is all about my 11 year police career. A lot of stuff happened then. Um, but uh, it, it, actually, I wrote so much, I had to put a bunch of chapters on my website. So if anybody wants to go without even buying the book, you can go to my website, jamesrfitzgerald.com. And, um, and you can look up, um, you know, the different books, and there's bonus chapters. And I'll never forget, it was Christmas night. It was the first Christmas I ever worked. And there's probably a lot of people out there that never worked a Christmas in their life. I'm sure you guys have. And it's strange being away from your family and your friends and loved ones and all that stuff and working. And uh, sometimes it's quiet, but sometimes you're going into houses with trees knocked over again. The drunken father comes home and causes problems. Um, but I remember being on this, uh, my partner invited me in for dinner. I said, you know what? Now you go in with your family. It's Christmas night. We, were, we lived where we worked so we can go home for lunch or dinner or chow, as he used to call it. He was a military guy. And, mm -hmm. um, and I just stayed outside and wrote an accident report. I think I had like a sandwich with me or something. So now nah, you go on and spend it with your family. You don't need me tonight. <clears throat> and the bells were chiming around me. It was kind of a nice suburban street. He lived on Christmas lights all around. It was a clear, cold night. And I just remember sitting back. I'm, I'm answering your question here, Jason, just a long way about it. And I remember kind of sitting back and getting out of the car. Um, um, and I'm watching the vapor come out of my mouth and the, and the reflection in the window. And for the first time, I'm kind of seeing myself in my police uniform with no one around me. Uh, mm -hmm. Like there wasn't like, uh, uh, you know, my wife before I would go to work. Then it wasn't my, my uh, maybe my parents once or twice before I went off. Obviously other officers. And I'm looking at myself, damn, I'm, I'm actually a police officer now, aren't I? 23, um, brand new at the job, already made three felony arrests. Um, what, uh, what does this all mean? And, and it finally hit me. He said, you know, and I wrote this in my book too, or at least in parts of it, along with the uh, bonus chapter on the website. In, in that stage in life, I just had realized that, um, you know, I was never, I was never the fastest kid on the block. I could never hit the ball the longest or throw it the farthest. I could, I played sports. I could handle myself. You know, I, I could, uh, you know, I was never the toughest, but you know, I was up there and I said, you know what? Um, this is the first in, in school, you know, my grades are good. Could I have done better? Yeah. Were they great? No. So all those type things, um, I said, you know what, for the first time in my life, I'm going to really take something serious and work as hard as I can to get to the top. doesn't mean I have to be a chief or a superintendent or whatever, but I want to be the best, whatever level I am in my future career, I want to be the best. I want to take it serious. Um, I'm going to get a good night of sleep, every, a good night's sleep every night before. And I made a deal by myself back then. Uh, I never had a drinking problem, um, but in you know, late high school and college, I, I did my share of it. I said, you know what? I'm not even going to drink on nights before work. And um, and uh, so, you know, a couple nights off, I'd have a beer or two. And I said, I want to really play it straight. And because not just being, not just being trying to do my best out there, but I also don't want to get killed. And I want my reflexes and I want my thought processes and my brain functionality to be at its top. So I said, you know, good night, eight hours of sleep. Don't drink. Now, look, over the years, of course, I've had a beer with some a friend that stopped over or something, but nothing like hitting the bars to one or two a.m. than having to be up 
for day work uh, the next morning. So, um, and I just said then, and my dad had given me some words of advice then, and just, you know, um, you know, your main job every day going to work is to make sure you come home. So that's number one. Yep. And number two is just be fair to everybody and be the best you can. And you're going to have a great career. He died within a few years. My dad never saw me even get promoted to sergeant, which happened, you know, about five years later. But, um, but you know, I, I always remember those words. And he said he had no law enforcement experience in his background, whatever. So I just appreciated him saying those words. And ever since then, I was just a straight shooter on the job. I took it very serious. I, I, my rights were violated as a teenager in some incident that I, I captured in my first book uh, by a, a, a bizarre Philly police officer. Everything wound up okay. But I said, I, had a, I called him a negative role model. And I had a few of those over the years. I said, these are the kind of guys I'm not going to model myself after. In fact, I'm going to be the antithesis and, and, and you know, not be what they are. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's how I strove to live my personal life, but also my professional life. So, yeah, Jason, I knew those kind of cops and uh, some just showed up, answered their calls. That was it. And maybe they did OK in that regard. Um, a few of them over the years, whether I knew them personally or read about them, Obviously, there's a corrupt side or of some sort, or they abuse some people's rights. And and uh, if I had uh, any role in that, you know, I made sure they got out of police work. Um, but I also said, you know, uh, I'm not going to kiss anybody's butt. I'm not going to. Someone asked me uh, within a six months or so. I had a good friend in the Philly PD. Do you have a rabbi yet? I said, rabbi. I said, I'm Catholic. Why would I have a? No, no, no. That's a cop expression. Do you have like a, a a senior officer, you know, in management, you know, kind of taking you under his wing and uh, and you know as your mentor? I said, oh, well, there's one or two guys. I just never heard of the term rabbi. I'm rabbi, not sure, guys. Yeah. Is that is that still used in in law enforcement? Uh, I I've never heard that. This is the first time okay. I'm actually hearing it. Yeah, it wasn't anything. Nothing negative. It's not you know anti-Semitic yeah, or no. anything like that. It's just you have someone above you who is like guiding you and taking you under his wing, and um, and you know pulling you along, whatever. So so I really never had one of those guys, but I think I impressed a number of supervisors along the way with my dedication, you know, always on time, never abusing sick leave, and uh, and making damn good arrests. That not only the arrest itself was good, no one hurt. But they also held up in court and uh, and even the appeal stage. So uh, so I feel uh, pretty confident, and it got me through 11 years on the police department up to the rank of uh, detective sergeant. Um, but then at the 11 year point, uh, actually before that, some uh, really bad politics kicked into my PD, and I said I got to get out of here. This isn't for me That's anymore. It. And I know sometimes on the show you talk about depression and issues with people. I don't think I was clinically depressed during a few of these years uh, when, the, when the new regime took over and the other one was put out. Uh, but uh, I certainly had a, a, a situational depression or lever, level of anxiety. And uh, like I said, as fun as the early years were, you know, car chases, gunplay, felony arrest, all that kind of stuff, saving lives, you know, babies, you know, helping deliver babies or at least real close to that. Uh, the, the internal part of police work, as you guys, I'm sure know, can also be problematic at times. And, um, and uh, with all kinds of different personality issues and who's, who's this uh, captain's boy, who's this lieutenant's you know, best friend, 
And I mean, to me back then, it had nothing to do with race or ethnicity or anything. If you did a favor for someone or your your wives were friendly, it, it came into all those types of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and it's just uh, and again, I had a few guys that really liked me. And then when politics sort of changed things around, I had a few guys that really hated me. And when I really never did anything to them, um, but I was almost like too good of a cop for them. And it, it, it bothered them. And I kind of got on the wrong side of uh, of that eight ball. But um, but um, nonetheless, uh, Jason, to answer uh, your original question, I still stayed strong to, uh, you know, my badge and, and what it meant. And um, and uh, I, I strived every day to be the best cop I could. But running joke, then we all wore our ballistic vest. We said when we were in headquarters, uh, make sure you have a double a double. Uh, uh, you know, Tefl- uh, Kevlar portion on your back because that's where the backstabbing occurred. The inside. Not, yep. not literally, of course, but it, it could happen otherwise. So, um, yeah, so that's, um, again, I capture all of this uh, in my second book, uh, including those dark years, as I call them, the dark side, I guess, 83 through 85 for me. Then a miraculous mm-hmm. election occurred and uh, and politics changed. And <laughs> The good chief who was fired and the bad chief was put in, it all reversed and uh, and things um, got much better. But I was still spent and I said, this could happen again. And uh, I, I got to make some moves. I remember saying to myself back then, I was too old to start over as a rookie. By this point, I'm in my early 30s, but I was probably too young to be a chief somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing about law enforcement, it, it's pretty rare to become a chief to a department bigger than yours, maybe five or 10 officers, something like that. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't go from Ben Salem PD, you know, even a Lieutenant or a captain and become the the commissioner of the Philly police department. It doesn't happen that way. So I knew I was going to go to another department. It would be at least the same size or smaller. And I said, do I really want to do that and get involved in all the politics that every four years, the mayor changes or the city council, whatever it may be. I said, there must be something else out there. And that's when I, I said, I might as well look at the top of the federal system and let's start with the FBI. And I did and um, took the test and um, in 87 hired by them. Oh, wow. Um, that's actually pretty amazing. You, you mentioned two things that really uh, struck a chord with me. Um, one, I don't know if guys from bigger departments can understand that. So I went from a big department to a small department when there's a change in the regime that can literally change your your status as a police officer because you had build a rapport with the regime that was in before and then now this new regime comes in and then you have like you said there's there's guys who have um this favoritism to to an extent because someone plays golf with someone someone's drinking his buddy and so on and so forth and that plays a role and i, I don't think guys from bigger departments i mean it's it's different for guys in bigger departments to to really feel that because, you know, on a job like like Frank's, you know, there's five boroughs you can get sent to, I don't know, wherever, whatever command in whatever borough. But when you're stuck with the same guys for the duration of your time as a police officer, that could wear on you when that regime changes. How did you um, keep the, the mindset to like, all right, I'm still going to go and, and do my job every day and, and do it to the best of my ability? Because what happens in most cases when the regime when there's a regime change like that and they start to mess with you guys just throw in the towel and then he's coming every day with like a negative mindset what kept you on the beaten path to continue to be you know who you are 
Yeah, and, and again, you guys are asking great questions, and uh, a lot of law enforcement folks watching this will understand it, but a lot of civilians, and you know, some of it may be a surprise. But let me also throw in there that, Jason, what we're talking about here does happen in other fields, in other professions, other disciplines. There are changes. Mm -hmm. In some other professions, they have no uh, civil service or other kind of protection, and yes. uh, you know, there's a either a friendly or a hostile takeover, they just lose their jobs. So yeah. in our profession, at least we get, in most cases, to keep our job. Now, there are mm -hmm. examples where it really gets nasty and, uh, and there could be charges brought against someone for you know, alleged or actual wrongdoings and, and things go uh, downhill from there. But um, um, uh, yeah, it, it was worse for me and, and would be for someone else in this situation at the time I was a detective sergeant, mostly working inside as an administrator. So, mm -hmm. and I'm right outside, essentially, uh, we're about 15 feet away from the chief's uh, office. And this is the chief that he was deposed two years before a chief out of, a, a, a sergeant out of the Philly PD came in to run it. And I got along with him great. I was promoted under him, a legitimate competitive testing thing, but he happened to put that out there. No more politics in promotions. Uh, the numbers were what they were. And then all of a sudden this, he got canned when politics changed and, um, and, uh, and the old chief came back and then I was, they couldn't demote me or fire me, although there was threats of that. So um, they just started screwing with me every way they could. And it was mm -hmm. very difficult going home after, and I only live, you know, I only live five minutes from the station. And I remember saying, boy, I wish I lived farther away. Uh, you know, who wants a long commute to work, but in a way, it would have been nice to have more of a buffer between how close I was to the office. I would lay in yeah. bed and I think, oh, they're only, you know, a mile away and they're, you know, plotting this, that, or the other, uh, not just against me, but against my colleagues. Um, what was important for me, and uh, if any law enforcement officers are listening to this, I will, uh, I will emphasize this, because I used to say this at roll call about at least once a month. Obviously, things are important, like, you know, wear your ballistic vest. Uh, you know, wait for a backup to go into this kind of call or, you know, whatever. But from a personal perspective, um, I think what's important for law enforcement people, maybe more than any other profession, is to, to not only have friends in law enforcement, uh, to have, we used to kid around and say normal friends, but we know what that means. And that is to maintain friendships from your, your, your old neighborhood days, your high school, college days, and um, and and have sort of a sort of a, a a backdrop to fall onto, an environment to fall into that's not only someone talking about uh, police work all the time. I always found that the cops who got in trouble were the ones who only had cop friends. Yep. And um, trouble in little ways, trouble in big ways, and mm -hmm. there's nothing against being friends with your fellow officers. Uh, and I, I had good friends then, and I I've maintained them to this day. Um, but I also it was important to me to keep my friendships with people I grew up with who knew the real fits from growing up. And, uh, and um, I mean, I was still the real fits as a police officer, but, but just, you know, before I was wearing a badge and carrying a gun and that can have some sort of a, uh, a, a positive effect on you. So um, that, and I knew, you know, it really, it really makes you think hard when you know there are people out to get you. And I wound up eventually filing a lawsuit in my department when I first talked to an attorney 
he said, uh, you know, you're going to need, you're going to need to show some damages. I said, I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pissed off. They're, they're, they're backstabbing me. They're, they're disciplining me. He said, yeah, but you need beyond that. You have to go see a, a psychologist. I said, look, this stuff really bothers me. You know, I, I don't sleep real well, but there's nothing really wrong with me in that regard. I'm not, I didn't go the drinking route or anything, fortunately. Um, he said, go see the psychologist. And it was a, a good, uh, a well-known police psychologist in the Philly area. And I went to see him, took a few different tests, the MMPI and one or two others. And he said, uh, and I love how he put it. He said, uh, Fitz, here's the deal with you. And he said this sort of half jokingly, but I knew what he meant. You're a normal person in an abnormal situation. Oof. I said, wow. Okay. Because he knew everything was going on. He had talked to some other cops without giving any, you know, violating any of their privacy issues. And he says, your place is screwed up right now. And um, there's nothing wrong with you, but you're in a very difficult situation. And the indicators show, you know, the test shows that you're uh, a little bit uh, paranoid. He said, but I happen to know that if other cops from the other side are driving by your house to find out if like the resistance group is meeting to plot their, you know, uh, this was us, there's about a dozen of us, we called ourselves the resistance, like, you know, the, the French during World War II. And we mm -hmm. were doing our best to, uh, uh, to counter, counteract what was happening with this uh, unethical regime, I'll call them. And uh, he's there, so you gotta, you know, you gotta take care of yourself. So I did wind up filing a lawsuit. Coincidentally, it was timed a week before a big election and it made above the fold headlines again. And we think back in the day when newspapers actually and, and media accounts could actually affect elections, you know, up to election day, no, you know, it, you know, mailed stuff a month before or whatever. Um, we feel uh, that that my filing that lawsuit really to protect myself. I wasn't out to change the governmental history of my town, but it really did. And uh, then the bad chief wound up being fired. The good chief came back. Uh, his name was Rich Viola, by the way, the good chief. Uh, I've been in touch with him all these years. Uh, I write about him. He's like the first Renaissance man I ever met. Very interesting guy growing up in South Philly, whatever. But he really knew how to, uh, he knew how to handle politicians and, and fellow officers. And uh, uh, so it, he was an interesting guy in that regard. But all of us, you know, even with the lawsuit filed, I wound up dropping the lawsuit. They covered my legal um, expenses. Um, they sent me to the FBI National Academy, which was really strange. I went there. I was the youngest guy. Are you guys familiar with the FBI NA? It's the, uh, for, your, for your listeners and your, and your viewers, it's, uh, it's a premier law enforcement school in the world for, um, for police officers to attend, police management. And it's an 11 week school, at least back then it was. It, it, there's four schools, four separate uh, classes per year. And uh, it's, you have that on your resume, on your CV, you're gonna go places, uh, you know, everything else, uh, you know, um, working out in your favor. So I was there, I was the youngest guy uh, out of about 200 of us. And then, uh, but my application for the Bureau had already been in, had already been in. So mm -hmm. a year later, I'm sorry, I'm at the FBI Academy at the National Academy, ready to graduate and come back to my PD. I get a letter in the mail, my wife does at the time, and said, open it up, it's from the FBI. You passed your test, they wanna interview you. The bottom line is a year later, I'm back as an FBI new agent trainee. And now I'm the oldest guy in my class. 
So I went from kid <laughs> at the FBI Academy with my fellow with, with police officers to pops when I went back a year later, both in jest, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, that was the kind of the full circle of my career. Then a whole other level of life kicked in with 20 years in the FBI. But, uh, but my police days prepared me very well uh, on the streets of, uh, of whatever city I'd be working in, but also within the hallways of any uh, headquarters or office building in which I'd be assigned. Uh, how was that transition from uh, like a local municipality to like the FBI on a federal level? I know that had to be kind of daunting because um, it's a whole, it, that's a whole different ballgame we're talking about, you know, working in a small town and now, you know, you know, being a big wig in the FBI, just go through that whole the transition process. Yeah. And I do, I, I write about that in the beginning of my, uh, my second book ends with me going off to the FBI Academy and my third book begins first day at the FBI Academy. And I think in one or both of the books or my website, I forget, but I do use the term, which I didn't invent, but I went from being a big fish in a small pond mm -hmm. to a small fish in a big pond. At the big time, pond, yeah. I was very happy with that. Uh, um, and um, a lot of people think FBI agents, they're all former law enforcement and military. They're not. It's really, not it, was a, it was, a, it was a, a mixed background, women, men, white, black, few Asians. It was a great uh, representation of our country at the time. Uh, not everybody made it through. Um, and um, there was probably about maybe 10 former law enforcement in our class, another four to five lawyers, three to four accountants, some nurses, uh, professional oh, wow. golfer, uh, and teachers, and I mean, all kinds of mix of people. And uh, it was a good blend. So the law enforcement folks would help, you know, for uh, arrest techniques and all those things, the legal folks, you know, before our test, they would, uh, you know, we'd have, uh, you know, uh, study sessions, whatever. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely intense. Um, in the Pennsylvania State Police Academy, I could at least go home every weekend. Uh, but for the first six weeks, I couldn't do that. So it was tough being away from my family, then two young boys at home. Um, but um, it was a transition and my first office was New York City. So oh, wow. um, back then there was only two offices you could request and pretty certainly get. And that was New York and LA because they were tough cities to staff. If you're from there, you want to go there, it's fine. But the, the farm boys and girls from Midwest, they get sent to uh, <laughs> New York. Uh, you know, it can be tough <laughs> and uh, nothing against them. They were some of the best agents I met, but talk about a transition. I grew up, you know, in the fourth largest city in the country, Philly, you know, I got it, but there's, there's really nothing like New York. And I was really lost those first, uh, those first uh, few days, a uh, few weeks, I literally lost. I walk out of 26 federal Plaza in lower Manhattan. All right. Am I going left to go to my car? Am I going right? So, um, uh, but I eventually picked up the five boroughs, had the old Hagstrom's maps back then, well before GPS, but we'd mm -hmm. get bank robberies in uh, Far Rockaway or, uh, or the South Bronx or Staten Island. I mean, and you know, uh, I mean, obviously the NYPD were the first responders. We didn't have to go lights and siren, but uh, I actually covered, uh, I think I did bank robberies in all five boroughs one day. I'll never forget. Uh, either assisting or whatever, uh, or wow. I was the, the case agent for that bank robbery. But we had a great task force on the uh, the bank robbery task force. It was FBI, NYPD. I learned so much 
uh, in my first, I was 11 years as a cop, you know, were homicides, sexual assaults, you know, rape cases against adults, kids, you name it, um, stolen cars, everything, bank robberies. Uh, I caught a bank robber who was wanted in multiple states in my last year on the, uh, uh, on, on the Ben Salem police. But, um, uh, but I just learned so much working alongside these NYPD guys who these grade one detectives, even if they weren't, you know, grade one, they just knew their stuff and they knew the city really well. What surprised me, uh, there were some cops, you know, some detectives and we'd be going to a job out in, you know, you know, Bensonhurst or something. And I said, yeah, yeah, where's that street committee? I don't know. I don't know that area at all. I said, well, you grew up in New York. Oh yeah. But you know, I grew up in the Bronx. I don't know anything about Brooklyn or Queens or where yeah. we were going. I thought, because most guys in Philly, you kind of know most streets and most places. It's a big city, but again, it, it pales in comparison to New York. So, uh, and uh, you'd have people that also surprised me. There's guys on the PD that I work with, you know, NYPD guys, you know, they hate the Mets. I said, wait a minute, you grew up in New York. Right? No, I want them to lose all the time. I'm a Yankees yeah, guy. Yeah, I'm a Yankees Jason, fan, yeah. I see, I, Jason, I saw you with your hat. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, all right, well, so your city, they got to be your second favorite team. Now, I always hated them. All right. So just some, you know, personal things there. But I learned a lot from these guys. We got along so well. We'd, we'd complain to each other about our respective bosses. There was never a competition. Um, and um, it, it was just, and I've always said from day one, you hear, you know, FBI and local PD don't like each other, whatever. I found the working bees, the agents, the officers, detectives, they always got along fine. Almost always, it was the bosses that had the ego issues and, and, uh, issue. and what have you, and they had to play games in that way. But uh, uh, I always heard, you know, uh, oh yeah, the FBI comes in, they want to help you when you're a cop, and uh, next thing you know, they take the arrest, get all the, uh, you know, get all the uh, congratulations for it. And I said, look, when I become FBI, I'm never going to do that. It's the first thing I'm going to tell an officer if I'm working with him, and especially as a profiler. Years later, um, I was telling, uh, I'm working with local PDs. And uh, and they would come in to help on a case, serial rapist, serial killer. Said, look, this is going to be your arrest. You're going to do the perp walk. You're going to put the handcuffs. We're just advisors. Uh, I've been there, done that. I've made my shares of arrest in New York as a cop. I don't need that now. I just want to be in the background and help you guys get this bad guy off the street. And that uh, and that's how I held my career. And I think on the most part, most FBI agents, FBI agents with whom I am familiar, that's that was their logic too. Gotcha. It's, I, I just wanted to rewind real quick because you said important things that really struck my mind of um, the identity of a law enforcement officer. Having that outlet, having that other coping skills, getting away from sometimes it's hard for the officer to get away from what they're dealing with because they don't know how to. You know what I mean? So like they go to work. Maybe they live five minutes from the police station or they live 50 minutes. And then, you know, the more you, it's like having a hobby, right? You're able to escape just for a little bit from what's going on to, to relieve, you know, whatever law, whatever you're, you're going through. And I don't think a lot of guys and girls do understand that. And it's hard to separate the job. So for me being young, it was a lot about the job, the job. And then once the work was over, Oh, what about going out after, or I don't want to miss this event. I don't want to miss that. And then I realized that slowly over a few years, everything around me wasn't as important to me, which it should have been. And now I had to go through what I went through to get 
to realize that. And I don't, you know, we don't want people to realize that because we know that. And like in any, like just, just like in any job, if you go in anything, you go full force into it, it can consume you and not obviously in a, in a positive way. So I really wanted to thank you for bringing that up. And point two was, I was going to ask you a question. I think you kind of answered it. You said it really great. I was going to ask you before we got into your FBI career and you're talking about if you went to another agency, I wanted to give you a situation where if you were the top commander of the NYPD police Academy in 2021, and you got these new recruits graduating and as we know, police is, I don't think it's on the uprise right now. Mm, agreed. All of your career, your life experience, what you're seeing in today's world, in a few sentences, what are you saying to these guys and girls that are about to go to their commands? I would say uh, we are living in difficult times. And um, however, if history is correct, uh, if history has any value to it at all, uh, our society goes through cycles in which certain uh, groups are, certain professions are, are denigrated or besmirched. Uh, the military, I, I'm old enough to remember after Vietnam, you know, the baby killers allegedly, which never happened. But I mean, uh, these, you know, returning troops will be spit on whatever. And, and there were like no movies made in the 70s about anything to do with Vietnam or the war. Uh, I think until Deer Hunter came along. But uh, uh, and now we see a cycle of law enforcement being um, being attacked, uh, and, and you know, especially last, you know, starting last summer, and you know, and I've always said, and read my books, you know, I've locked up cops, I've locked up FBI agents. If you're a dirty cop, if you're a dirty law enforcement, I want you away from me. I want you out. You know, all your legal, you know, priorities followed, and 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 all that. Uh, and, uh, you know, rules of evidence. I don't convict anyone before, you know, a jury of their peers does the same thing, but yeah, I at least want you out of the streets. So I, I am, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very forceful in that regard, but also to new, yeah, new recruits coming in saying, you're going to have it tough out there. You're going to make, it's going to make it seem like there are certain people out there and even media outlets will make it seem like you're worthless or you're, uh, or you're not appreciated or you're not liked. Um, rise above that, be better than that, know that they're wrong and you're right, and you're going to prove they're wrong and you're right by being a professional 100% of the time. That means sometimes turning your cheek uh, with certain things. Obviously, someone puts hands on you. It's different. Uh, it's, it's difficult, too. A lot of these district attorneys and top prosecutors now look the other way. Is, is it in Los Angeles um, that... Uh, Resisting yeah. arrest is no longer yep. you know, a felony or even a miss. They get out on bail, you know, hours later. I mean, no bail. And I mean, that that part of the cycle is going the wrong way. I don't think any of us want to get into politics here. And we're not. I'm not. But let's just hope that, you know, the men and women in blue, um, you know, maybe they've bottomed out around now. Uh, and let's hope that that pendulum is now swinging back the other way. And it's coming back up to where it should be. It's amazing. I have a toe, maybe a whole, half a foot in Hollywood. And I've done, you know, the, the Manhunt Unabomber series. I've been a host of other shows. I've been to this true um, uh, crime con, which is a crime conference. 
People love true crime TV shows, novels, nonfiction. They love this stuff. My books are doing well because it's true crime and it's walking people through the, you know, how crime really works, along with some personal aspects too. Um, but then you listen to the media and you, if you if you spend too much time on Twitter, if you're still allowed on Twitter even, uh, you know, you're going to think everyone out there hates you, whatever. That's that's not the case. People are depending on law enforcement. We are the new centurions. If you go back to uh, Joseph Wamba's book from the 70s yeah. and, of course, the centurions from Roman time, we are the protection of society. But we've got to do it right. We've got to keep doing it right. And um, we've got to play it you know, fair with everyone down the line. But um, either this, this, this stuff you're reading about in terms of... Uh, systemic anything against the police. You know, they're all bad this, they're all bad that. Um, and that's not the case at all. Isolated examples, of course, exist, and they should be uh, punished according to the law and, and, and excise removed from law enforcement if necessary. But uh, I, I've, I've met very few bad cops or bad FBI agents. I mean, I can count on one of these hands over the years. And, and even those people, uh, you know, I just want to stay away from them. They're not necessarily doing illegal things. So um, if you're going to join law enforcement today, you probably have a special calling. It's in your blood for whatever reason, uh, maybe your folks or some family member, um, but you want to give something back. And that's why I joined law enforcement. Um, I wanted to give something back to my society and help make it, uh, help make our society a better place to live. And I never woke up any day saying, I want to arrest this guy for that or this innocent guy for that. I want to shoot some guy because, uh, oh, it would look good on my resume. No, but no officer wants to yeah, shoot anybody. Absurd. I'm, I'm so proud. I went through my whole thing. life uh, with never pulling my trigger in anger. And I've had my gun drawn. I've been in firefights, or at least around the corner from where it was happening. Um, but um, and, and I, I'm so glad and I hope it stays in this stage of my life. I never have to either. So uh, no officer thinks that way. We're put in untenable situations that very few other people can handle and um, uh, in any way, shape or form, split second decisions have to be made. And when the slow motion of a you know, video, does it look like this has gone wrong or that's gone wrong? Arguably, yeah, but hopefully when a jury of their peers, and again, I'll, I'll preface this, if the cop did wrong, he or she deserves to be fired, arrested, convicted, whatever. But uh, we also have to take every situation into context in which it played out on the streets of this country. And let's just hope those worst days are behind us and law enforcement will be seen once again as being the important um, factor that it is in our society and, and, and should be for all of us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Fitz. Jay, before we wrap up, do you have any, do you have a, before I ask him the, the usually ending questions on the podcast, do you have any, one last question for him, Jay, or anything? No, I think he, he uh, was spot on with a lot of his answers. Um, you know, I just was, I've been in awe of your career and just, you kind of just walking us through, um, you know, what you went through and, and how you dealt with certain things and the fact that you, you know, um, kept your human side by staying in contact with the guys that you grew up with and always going out every day and putting your best foot forward to try to improve society. Um, that was kind of what I really wanted to know. And he answered all of that. So um, thanks for that, Fitzy. I appreciate you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, Fitz, for um, I guess passing the virtual torch to us of uh, <laughs> giving us the insight that um, you know, giving us 
the true insight and you know even being courageous and honorable about going to that to psychologist you know that means a lot yeah. to me because yeah. a lot of guys and girls um even if they did would not go through that and someone like you who is you know i would say you know Derek jeter of fbi you know top no. of the top <laughs> you know sure and, about that admitting admitting Derek that Derek jeter <laughs> admitting admitting that do you know what i mean like admitting what you admitted um that just because you go through a little hard time or you're a little stuck doesn't mean um that doesn't that doesn't define you forever and a lot of first responders know if you know they go they have a bad call or they're going through a rough time is don't let that consume you and I'm, when sure. i'm not saying raise my hand and go to the department psychologist but i'm saying raise my hand and go to my best friend from when i was 10 years old give him a call get yep. you know give like we, we you know, the, the, the conversation coming f full circle, give him a call, talk to people you can trust, not the guys on the job, because if you can't trust some of them, you know, high school with guns. So hmm. it's, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm really, really, you know, happy about this episode and gonna take it with me for the rest of my career. Um, oh. I learned a lot. And uh, before we wrap up, we always asked uh, our guests a few personal questions just to get listeners sure. to know you more so if you had one meal food one meal to eat every day for the rest of your life oh, healthy, healthy or unhealthy what are you gonna what are you going with a philly cheesesteak oh <laughs> super known. philly answer right there i like it I well like but it. A, i mean it has to be one of the better ones pats Gino's or pats uh gino's uh tony luke's one of those three they're all good okay okay very good Fa favorite movie that comes top of your mind right now one or two the Great Escape and The Godfather, one and Ooh, two. Good. Okay. I like those. Um, one person to hang out with for the day as fits right now, dead or alive, who are you hanging out with? Winston Churchill. Oh, Ooh, nice. Great answer. That's a good one. That's the first. Man of the Year, Time, Time Magazine. I just bought that as a Christmas gift for someone. So, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, really, really cool. Uh, actually cheap on Amazon, too. Um, speaking of, of Amazon questions, if, if people want to find your books and, and, and buy them, is that Amazon or is that on your website? Uh, both. And if they want signed copies, go to my website. My email address is there. Contact me and I'll glad to work out uh, signed copies, personalized, whatever. So, uh, yeah, feel free to do that. And um, and but also on Amazon, there's a and the third book is really the best selling book because it's all about the Unabomb case at the end. Not all about it's my first 10 years in the FBI so it's a journey to the center of the mind, book three. And the last longest chapter is my role in the Unabomb case. And, and I, if we, anything to end this here, if uh, in the miniseries, if you watched it, um, it, it made the Fitz character look like he really had more emotional problems, if not PTSD, than he did in real life. And nothing wrong if you have suffered from those things. But my character, uh, they, my, they had the Fitz character living in a cabin because he was so distressed after the arrest of Kaczynski. And uh, they had uh, the Fitz character abandoning his kids in a movie theater because he got paged and all of a sudden some document came in. So I argued with the writers. I was a consulting producer on the series. It's really a very good series. And I, I said they got about 85% of it accurate, which is pretty darn good for Hollywood on a based on true story uh, uh, you know, movie or, uh, or miniseries. So, uh, they, they did well, but, um, 
but I really didn't suffer the issues. And I really got along with the bosses too uh, at the Unibom Task Force, UTF. So uh, the Fitz character looks a bit more um, uh, stressed, if not you know, anxious uh, in the series than he, than, he, than he was in real life. And I think I was truly tested in my police department days for those two years, as we talked about earlier, and I put uh, in, in the book. But, um, but yeah, so the third book anyway is also an audio book. So if people are into the audio versions, they can get that. And, um, and the other three books, Amazon, Through Me, whatever. So uh, yeah, be glad to uh, sign some for our law enforcement brothers and sisters out there or family members who want to give them as gifts, right? Hint, hint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm happy you brought up the show because I thought the show was great. And I think yesterday on the phone, we were talking a little bit about, you know, um, some depression and, and things like that. And, and, and you admitted, and you know, when you're, I don't know if this was true in the show with the light, the light lamp, you know, you show up in the middle of the night, you get out of bed, you pull your gun out at the lamp, you keep staring at it. Um, a lot of flashbacks for the end where um, you're kind of slouched over in the car and uh, you know, it's just like a morbid depression vibe. You know, we talk about identity. You, you like live in the woods and stuff, you know, that's crazy. That's big, big signs of major depression and stuff. So I'm, I'm glad you brought those points up. Yeah, the streetlight incident never happened. Um, um, we did talk about with the writer sitting at a traffic light and it going from green to amber to red. And, uh, you know, who's controlling us? We're sitting in an intersection in the middle of the night, no one around us. And he actually picked up on that. And uh, it was kind of representative of the Unabomber's manifesto in technology. And, of course, we're seeing some of those issues today. I'm being asked more and more. Was, was Kaczynski really right in some of the stuff he wrote? And back in the earliest days, and we'll leave it at this, I said, you know what? Even a broken clock is, uh, is right twice a day. And, uh, yeah. and he, definitely, uh, he definitely had some prescient <laughs> ideas in there about technology and big government and whatever. So, uh, and some of that looks like it's, uh, it's coming to pass about now. So let's, uh, but he never should have bombed, and I'll, I'll say that everywhere else. If he just got up on a pedestal and started talking to people, uh, he may have been who knows what kind of a person that Kaczynski could have been, but uh, but he chose to kill people, which is all part of his psychopathy and his mental health issues. So that's a whole, that'll be another, uh, maybe another podcast we do. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Last question. You come to New York, um, we pull up a tarp, me and Jay, it's a time machine. You can go anywhere in the future, <laughs> anywhere in the past, as who you are, as fits now, fits where you're going. And why? My first year in the job as a patrol officer. Oh, wow. So I'm speaking professional. Of course, my kids being born, that's, that's all the top of the list and, and events with them and all that stuff. But if talking professional, my first year as a patrol officer, finally getting done my training and being my own boss in a car that I can go anywhere I wanted uh, within a sector, whatever. And, um, but yeah, that, that just from a professional perspective they were i look back they were my happiest days it was the winter time it was like the january of 77 the really cold winter the delaware river froze i remember driving wow. down because my town was right on the on the on the delaware with jersey on the other side and i remember watching people walking on it geez what do i do if they fall through i'm not going out there you know blah 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 <laughs> but uh but i still look back and this what a, what a fun time that was a few other rookies together making good arrests and just learning how to do the job, making some mistakes too. But, um, but from a professional perspective, yeah, that was the, uh, 
that's where I would go. And I'm, you know, I'm full of vim and vigor and piss and vinegar, as they used to say too. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, my whole future ahead of me, but, uh, uh, but yeah, no complaints where I am now either, but like from a professional perspective, that's, uh, uh, that's where I'd be, uh, you know, otherwise it would be my things with my kids and ball games and graduations and births of their kids and all that stuff. So, but, uh, yeah, first year as a rookie cop. Awesome. So, so you can, you can have your cake and eat it too then, right? <laughs> uh, or eat your cake and have it too. Yeah. <laughs> be careful how you use, uh, use those verbs. It could actually wind up getting, putting you in jail. Yeah. True. Uh, ask Ted Amen. Kaczynski. Amen. I had to, I had to say that. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, it was an, it was an honor, um, a privilege and something that I'm going to take for the rest of my law enforcement career and, uh, and hopefully my life and definitely just for today. Um, so Frank, you guys know where to find me at reps underscore four underscore responders. Jay, where can they find you at? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the real jumpman J. Uh, Fitzy, where can they find you? Uh, James R. Fitzgerald.com. All righty. Awesome. Fitz, it was, it was an honor. Uh, we had a great time. So thank you. You are very welcome. Let's do it again sometime. Yes, yes sir. Thank, thank you for your wisdom. And uh, I'm a big Star Wars guy. So thank you for being the Master Jedi for today. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Appreciate you, man. All yours. All yours. All no right. Problem. Have a good day, guys.